Acts chapter 9, it's verse 20. We're going to read from 19 to 22. Here's what it says. Now in several days, now for several days, he was with the disciples who were in Damascus, and immediately he, meaning Saul, began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All those hearing him continued to be amazed, and they were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on the name? and who has come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Minnesota State Fair starts on the 24th of this month. Last year, 1.8 million people attended. I wonder if you were to go down to the fair and stand outside of the gates and ask people, who is Jesus? What would be the responses that we'd get? Well, if we asked an atheist, he might say, Jesus? Well, we don't even know if he really existed. But if he did and he made those claims purported In the gospel, he was a delusional megalomaniac. What if we asked the Mormon? She would say, well, Jesus was a firstborn spirit child of heavenly father and one of his many wives. They also believe that he was the spirit brother of Lucifer, that is, Satan. How about the Jehovah Witnesses? They'd tell you that Jesus is the first and the highest created being that God has made. What if we were to put the question to Muslims? Ah, Jesus, peace be upon him, is a great prophet born from the Virgin Mary. He's the Messiah who will someday come back and abolish Christianity and kill the Jews. Speaking of Jews, how would a secular Jew answer the question? Jesus? He's the founder of Christianity, someone that uh, we Jews do not believe in. How about if you asked an Orthodox Jew? He might say, well, Jesus was a false prophet who tried to lead Israel astray. His so-called miracles were performed through black magic that he learned in Egypt. That's what the Talmud teaches us. What if instead of standing outside the state fair in a couple weeks, you could be transported back into time and be standing on the road to Damascus and ask that question of Saul as he was heading to that city to arrest Christians? Saul of Tarsus, who do you say that Jesus is? He would have said he's an apostate Jew who blasphemously claimed to be the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel. But what if you were to ask him that same question just an hour later? Saul would have answered, Jesus is indeed the Son of God. You know, for a Jew to come to that conclusion is pretty rare. But for Saul, the chief persecutor of the church, to come to that conviction, that was shocking. So shocking that when the Christians heard it, they couldn't believe it. It was too good to be true, and yet it was too true to be denied. But how did Saul come to that conclusion that Jesus of Nazareth was the very Son of God? And what does it take for others to have that same conviction? These are the questions we want to answer as we think about this portion of God's Word this morning. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Open up our hearts and minds as we listen to your Word so that we might be transformed by it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, how did Paul come to believe that Jesus was indeed the Son of God? Well, first and foremost, and this is your first point, through his own experience. Through his own experience. 
You know, few things are more powerful and convincing to us than our own personal experiences. I mean, think about restaurants. Suppose there's a certain restaurant that you've eaten at a number of times, and each time you've gone there, the food's been very tasty, and the wait staff has been helpful and friendly and cheerful. But then you have a couple of friends who tell you that they'd been there in the last week or two, and that the food was terrible, and the nasty servers were not, not, didn't leave a pleasant experience. Would you then immediately stop going to that restaurant? Probably not. Instead, you'd keep going because of your own dining experience there, which had been positive. Of course, the next time you went and you had a bad experience, you'd go back to your friends and say, man, is that place going downhill? To which they would say, well, we warned you. Yeah, I should have listened to you. But you only came to an agreement with them when your own experience matched theirs. Now, when I was a kid, you would hear of a few people who claimed that they had seen or experienced UFOs. But those were the type of people who wore tinfoil hats and were always shining their flashlights up into the sky at night. Today, you have congressional inquiries, and supposedly credible people claiming not only that they've seen UFOs, but that the, the government has been hiding the remains of crashed saucers and that they have alien bodies soaking in formaldehyde in some warehouse in Arizona. That's your state, by the way. <laughs> now, some people claim that they've encountered ghosts or demons, something supernatural. If you were trained at a university in North America, steeped in the philosophy of naturalism, then obviously angels and demons are no more real than fairies and goblins. Do I believe UFOs are coming from other planets? No. Do I believe in demons? Yes. I have no personal experience with UFOs, but I've dealt with enough of the demonic to know that that's real. Well, Saul had a supernatural experience with an extraterrestrial being. Back in Chapter 9, verse 3, says this. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Now, Saul didn't respond by saying, yeah, how do I know it's really you? He knew who Jesus was, and he knew the person who was speaking to him was a heavenly person, who identified himself as Jesus. And once he knew that and understood that, Paul, or Saul understood that everything he had believed about Jesus, about the Christians, about himself, and about his approach to religion was wrong. Okay, so our experiences can be powerful and persuasive, gripping and the grounds for our belief, but does that mean that all of our experiences are valid and true? Muhammad, the founder of Islam, he claimed that the angel Gabriel came to him while he was in a cave. The angel commanded him to read But Muhammad couldn't because he was illiterate. Then the angel squeezed him really hard and he was able to read. Now what should we make of Muhammad's experience? Well, we could say that he was simply a deceiver who lied about the whole thing. I remember talking to one of my Muslim friends one time about this episode in Muhammad's life. I asked him, so was there anyone else there who saw and experienced this in the cave? He said, no, Muhammad was alone. I said, well, how do you know that he didn't just make it up? Or how about another possibility? Maybe he wasn't lying because he did really have a profound, life-changing experience. But how does he know that it was really the angel Gabriel who appeared to him? Maybe this angel was actually a demon. In denouncing the false teachers in the church, Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, Therefore, it's not surprising that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end is according to their deeds, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. 
Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, he claimed that he was visited by an angel named Moroni, who, referred, who he referred to as an angel of light. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, this, but even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that I preach to you, he is to be accursed. People can have powerful experiences, but that in itself is not proof that the experience is valid or that it's from God. Paul's was. Joseph Smith and Muhammad's were not. Indeed, Muhammad first suspected that he had encountered a demon. It was his wife, Khadija, and her cousin who convinced him that it was actually an angel. Well, first and foremost, it was Paul's own experience that convinced him that Jesus was the Son of God. But past that, he also, and this is our second point, heard testimony from others, the testimony of others. You know, the Gospels are filled with the deeds of Jesus and claims by Jesus to indicate that he both believed and gave convincing evidence that he was indeed the Son of God. Now, Paul couldn't just simply pick up a Bible and read through the four Gospels. They hadn't been written yet. Paul was well into his ministry before Matthew or Mark wrote their Gospels, and he was probably dead by the time John wrote his. But most of the people who had heard Jesus teach and witnessed his miracles were still around at the time that Paul was converted. After his conversion, when Paul spoke to these people, what did they tell him that cemented into his mind the truth that Jesus is the Son of God? Well, if he talked to Peter, Peter could have told him about Jesus' power over nature, about the time that they were on the sea. Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat, and the waters were coming over the side. They thought they were going to drown. They woke Jesus up. Don't you care that we're perishing? Jesus stands up, looks out at the waves, rubs his eyes, and says, Hush, be still. And all the waves and all the wind stopped. He goes back to sleep. And they're looking at each other saying, who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. Or maybe Peter could have told them about the time that they were in the boat and they saw Jesus walking across the top of the water. Lord, if that's you, command me to come out to you. Come on out, Peter. (laughs) Peter also walked on water. But then what happened? He started looking around, got his eyes off of Jesus, and he began to sink. Boy, there's a lesson there, isn't there? There are all kinds of stories about Jesus' power over nature. Or how about the healings that took place? Bartimaeus, the blind man from Jericho, and his friend. The paralytic was lowered down from the ceiling by the friends of this man who saw no other way to bring him to Jesus. Their clever determination paid off. After telling him that his sins were forgiven, he proved that he had the authority to forgive those sins by commanding the lame man to take up your pallet and go home. He got up and went home, and the religious leader stomped out and began plotting Jesus' death. But not only did Jesus demonstrate his power over sickness, he had power over death itself. How many people did Jesus raise from the dead? Three. Lazarus, the widow's son from Nain, and the little daughter of Jairus. I mean, his, his miracles, I have to admit, though, his miracles do not prove Jesus' deity. Elijah and Elisha in the Old Testament each raised someone from the dead. But it does prove that he was acting on the authority of God as those prophets were as well. But here's the thing. Jesus did claim to be the Son of God, indeed to be equal to God. Take your Bible and turn back to John chapter 5. Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. He purposely did that on the Sabbath to provoke the religious leaders who said that it was wrong to heal people on the Sabbath because you're working and that's a violation of the Sabbath. (laughs) Well, look what it says in verse 17, how Jesus responded to him. My father is working until now, 
and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Therefore Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater, uh, show him greater works than these so that you might marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whomever he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that, listen to this, all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Muslims say, we honor Jesus as a great prophet, but you don't honor him as the Son of God, and therefore you insult him. Liberal Christians say, we believe Jesus is a great moral teacher that we should follow, but we don't believe in his deity. Then you don't believe in Jesus. Jesus went on to say this, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. He went on to claim that an hour is coming in which all who are on the to- in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. I would like to be at Arlington Cemetery when that happens. Wouldn't that be something to hear the ground rumble? Jesus claimed that he came from heaven, sent by the Father. He was born in Bethlehem, but he existed as the Son of God from all eternity. So let's get away from this patronizing talk about how Jesus was a great moral teacher. If he was not, in fact, the Son of God as he claimed, he's either a liar or a lunatic. Remember when Thomas finally saw the resurrected Christ, his doubts gave way to faith. He fell on his, feet, on his face before the feet of Jesus and said, My Lord, And my God. Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. By the way, that would be us. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Speaking of Christ, The Apostle Paul later wrote this, In him dwells all the fullness of deity in bodily form. But that's when the objection comes up. Yes, I know that you Christians worship Jesus as God, and perhaps Jesus even claimed to be the Son of God. But as an Orthodox Jew, I cannot accept that claim because nowhere in the Tanakh, what you call the Old Testament, does it suggest that the Messiah will be divine. The Messiah will be a great servant of the Lord, but he's not the Lord himself. But is our Jewish objector, right? Does the Old Testament teach that the Messiah will be a mere human, albeit a very great one? Or does it teach that the Messiah will indeed be the Son of God, God incarnate, as the Christians claim? That brings us to our last point, the witnesses, the witness of the apostles. Now notice I've been using courtroom language here, testimony, witness. There's a courtroom drama taking place every time the word of God is being preached, even as it's being preached right now. Witnesses come forward, testimony is given. What's at stake is the truth, the truth of who Jesus of Nazareth really was. That's why the Christian apologist Josh McDowell entitled his book Evidence That Demands a Verdict. You have to decide on Jesus as to who you believe him to be and how you'll respond to him. 
Well, Paul came to believe that Jesus was indeed the Son of God by his own personal experience. Added to that was the testimony of others, but it also had to match up with the Scriptures, specifically the Jewish Scriptures, the Tanakh, or what we call the Old Testament. What Jesus said to the Pharisees, You search the Scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it's these that testify of me, and you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. John 5, 39-40. But do the Old Testament Scriptures predict the coming of a Messiah who would be divine? There's a number of Old Testament passages, I believe, indicate that, but we only have time to look at a few, so the first one I want us to look at, and you can turn to this, is Psalm 110. Psalm 110. By the way, Psalm 10 is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. It's found in Paul's writings. It's found in Peter's preaching. Jesus himself actually quoted from this one. Look what it says in verse 1 of Psalm 10. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, I want you to notice some things here. Now, here's why you to do some interpretation. Notice that there's two separate persons addressed as Lord here, right? Notice also, if you have a New American Standard Version, the first Lord is put in all capital letters. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The second Lord is capital L, small O, R, D. Now, the the translators are putting that in there for a reason. The Hebrew word that's used for Lord in the first one is Yahweh. The Hebrew word that's used in the second one for Lord is Adonai. But both Yahweh and Adonai are used of God in the Old Testament. So Christians believe that the reason there are two persons addressed as Lord is because the first Lord, Yahweh, is God the Father addressing the second Lord, Adonai, which is God the Son, who is incarnated in Jesus of Nazareth. Well, how do the Jewish apologists respond to this Christian interpretation of the passage? Well, they'd say, no. Yes, we do agree that the first Lord spoken of here is God, but the second Lord, Adonai, refers to King David himself. The speaker is just like a court attendant. So what he's saying is, the Lord God said to my Lord, King David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. But listen carefully. This is why, here's why the interpretation doesn't work. What happens if we just keep reading? Verse 3. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Listen to this line, though. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Was David a priest? Was David a priest forever? No, kings were not to be priests and priests were not to be kings. Kings came from the line of uh, the tribe of Judah. Priests had to come from the tribe of Levi, specifically from the line of Aaron. Ah, says our Jewish objector. But you Christians claim that Jesus was a priest, but he also wasn't from the house of Levi. You claim that he was from Judah, so he wouldn't qualify either. Now, they're right that in the Mosaic law, only those who are from the tribe of Levi and the house of Aaron could be priests. But with the inauguration of the new covenant, which God promised in both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, there would be a new priesthood not connected with the house of Levi and Aaron, but rather according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have time to lay out 
how that all fits together and why Melchizedek functions as a new type of priesthood. If you look in Hebrews chapter 6 to 9, the author deals with that whole issue for uh, three, four chapters. But when I've listened to Jewish apologists offer their critiques of the Christian interpretation of Psalm 110, almost never do they point out that this same Lord is to be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So the second Lord spoken of here is not David, but David's greater son, the Messiah, who will sit at the right hand of God and be a priest as well as the king. But if it's speaking of the Messiah, then we're told here that the Messiah will indeed be divine. Now turn over to Psalm 45. You know, they tell you to pause until you stop hearing the pages rustle. Rush, but I, but I'm, I'm guessing that there's probably a couple high school kids who know that and they just keep making the noise and see how long the bastard will keep going. Well, look what this one says, starting in verse 1. It says, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verse to the king. Now, who's the king he's addressing the verse to? We don't know for sure. It could be David or it could be God. Let's keep reading. My tongue is a pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured out upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So God has blessed you forever. So this person's a king that God is blessing, right? He says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously. For the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness, let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The people fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of right uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Listen to this line. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now the word for God here in both places is Elohim. But notice what he's saying. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. There's two people identified as God. But how can that be? Jews are strict monotheists. They believe in one God. The most fundamental statement of faith for a Jew is the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If there's only one Lord and one God, then why does Psalm 110 speak of two lords and Psalm 45 speak of two gods? Now, for the Jew, this is a puzzle. For the Christians, it's not a problem. We believe that the Bible teaches that God is triune. He's one God who subsists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And while it's the New Testament that lays out clearly the doctrine of the Trinity, there's nothing in the Old Testament that precludes the idea of a triune God, and there's actually a number of places that hint that God has to be more than just one. So Jews reject the idea that the Messiah would be divine because they believe there's one God who's one person. We believe that God is one per, a God subsisting in three persons, which understanding accounts better for verses like this one in Psalm 110 and 45. There are many passages in the Old Testament that indicate the Messiah will be divine. Let me give you three more. Isaiah 9, 6-7. This one's pretty familiar to you. What does it say in Isaiah 9, 6-7? It says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, 
His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end of the increase of his government and peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now some of the Jewish commentators and apologists argue that the child spoken of here is King Hezekiah. Well, Hezekiah was a great and godly king, but the titles given to this child cannot apply to him. Wonderful counselor? Well, maybe, but there's nothing in the scripture that tells us something about some uh, incredible insight that Hezekiah had that would merit that title. How about mighty God? The Hebrew word is El Gabor. Gabor means strong or mighty, and it can be used of men. We're told that Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. But the word El is the word that's used for God. Hezekiah could be called a mighty man, but he certainly couldn't be called mighty God. And what about being called eternal father? It could be translated father of eternity. You can't be eternal unless you're God. And how long would this child and son sit on David's throne? From then on and forevermore. Hezekiah lived and died like all the kings of Judah, but this one, this Messiah, Jesus, lived and died and was raised again never to die. It's David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who inherits the kingdom and to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. Zechariah 12, 10. The prophets in the Old Testament predicted that when the Messiah came, he would be rejected and scorned by his people. Isaiah 49 speaks of the servant of the Lord who will be the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation. But through the prophets, God also promised that despite Israel's sin, after a long period of being blinded to the truth and alienated from God, someday he would yet redeem them and bring them back to himself. And the passage in Zechariah speaks of this future day. Now both in Zechariah chapter 12 and chapter 14, it speaks of the end times when the nations would gather around Israel to attack them and God is going to destroy them. Turn If you're, if you're looking at it, just turn for a quick, otherwise listen. This is from Zechariah chapter 14. It says this, Behold, the days are coming from the Lord, when the spoils taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be uh, captured, the houses uh, plundered, and the women raped. And half of the city will go into exile, but the rest will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight those nations against those nations, as when he fights in a day of battle. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the mountain of, Mount of Olives will be split in the middle from east to west, a very large valley, so that half the mountain will move to the north and the other half will move to the south. Now back in chapter uh, 12. Now both chapters speak of that same time frame at the end. The first nine verses describe that attack on Jerusalem and how the Lord will save them at that time. But look what it says in verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit, the spirit of grace and supplication so that they'll look on me whom they pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over firstborn. Now who's speaking here? It's God. It's God who's going to pour out his spirit on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Give them the spirit of grace and supplications but specifically, who's the one that they look on? Me, the speaker, whom they've have pierced. But how can you pierce God? He doesn't have a body. Well, you can if that body was incarnated in Jesus Christ and he was nailed to a cross that is pierced. The speaker is the Messiah, Jesus. 
You see, in Israel's darkest hour, when it looks like the Antichrist will accomplish what Hitler failed to do, bring about a final solution, the liquidation of all Jews, the people will cry out to God to rescue them. And who does God the Father send? His Son, Jesus. And the reason they will weep bitterly is because they will finally see that their rescuer is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, their Messiah who they've rejected for 2,000 years. Look at the first verse of chapter 13. After a time of national mourning, it says, In that day there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. They're going to be baptized. We sing that song, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains, lose all their guilty stains, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. For some of you here today, that's what you need. You've heard about Jesus. You know that he died on a cross for sins. But you've never looked upon him in faith so as to be saved. Why not? What's keeping you from turning to Christ? The pleasures of this world, they don't satisfy you, and you know that. They give a temporary fizz. And even if they did satisfy, they're not going to last. Don't you sense your days flying by? Don't you know that your life will soon be over? I was talking to Pastor Jeff just the other day at prayer and fasting. You know, on YouTube, you can find video footage from World War I, video footage from New York City in 1910, and through digital enhancement, they make it in color, and it, it, it comes really smooth. And we were talking about what this really does is it makes those people real. And then I think about it, as I'm watching these people coming out of a factory, and, you know, a little kid, he's probably about six years old, working in the factory, smoking a cigarette. And I'm thinking to myself, he's long since dead. His children are dead. Probably some of his grandchildren are dead. Someday they're going to shut the carnival down. And you are going to go to your eternal home. But where will it be? Heaven? Or hell? You know, if we did go down to the state fair and ask people who they thought Jesus was, what do you think would be the most common answer? I would guess it would be, well, he's the son of God. Many would give a correct answer, but they still haven't made a correct response as a result. They know that he's the son of God, but they still haven't trusted him as their savior. Have you? When Jesus asked that question of his disciples, who do men say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for it wasn't flesh and blood that revealed that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. If you're a Christian today, it's because God has revealed to you who Jesus was and given you a heart to respond to the knowledge that you have. If you're not a Christian today, you ought to ask him to open your eyes to see the treasure that Jesus is so that you can respond and find the eternal life that he gave to Paul, that he will give to future Jews, and that he offers to all people who would just simply turn to him in faith. You know, for some of you guys, the harvest has passed, the summer has ended, and you're not yet saved. 
When will you be? Let's pray. Our Father in God, such weighty matters. People who don't believe are responsible for their unbelief. People who do believe do so because you've opened up their hearts and minds. Father, we have people sitting here today who still are not believers. We pray that today would be the day that their hearts and minds would be open so that they'd respond. And we pray again for the ministry of our church as we get the gospel out through our Bible studies and through the preaching goes over the internet and on the radio station. We want people to come to know you and celebrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So bless us to that end, we ask again. In Jesus' name, amen.